Programming Throwdown, episode 145, Unsupervised Machine Learning. Take it away, Patrick. Welcome to another, as we've termed it, duo episode. That's uh, just Jason and myself. No special guests this time. It's because we have a lot to say. We have it all pent up, so expect a high energy episode today. <laughs> That's right. We'll start off by talking about email. Well, What's more no, high no, spoiler alert. Spoiler. <laughs> I do tell this to people in my meetings. I'm like, if you're in an afternoon meeting, I'm typically more ramped up and like, you know, kind of, you think you'd be tired by the end of the day, but I, I get the, I get kind of like riled up Me about too. stuff throughout the day. Yeah. I wonder if maybe we're more common because I feel like, uh, isn't that more natural? You, you wake up, your brain still hasn't really like kicked in yet. So maybe, I don't know. And then I just crash at the end of the day, but that's another, another <laughs> problem for another time. <laughs> so as Jason foreshadowed, we're going to talk a bit about email. So this is actually a topic Jason and I were talking about. So we decided to talk about it on air, which is if you are not in a large organization, maybe this is a, a foreign thing to you, but most folks, I would say, I, I've never looked at it, actually. But I would assume a lot of people work in big companies. And in big companies, you get a lot of email, a lot of email. Not junk mail, not spam, although I guess you could. But at my company, they're pretty good about filtering that out. But just like emails from random teams, random automated announcements, automated meeting notices, Everything just gets pushed to email and it's important to stay organized uh, using, you know, either rules in your client or on the server or just making sure you put stuff into various folders or flagging stuff. I think everyone has a different uh, scheme. I got criticized actually by my kids because I have like over a thousand unread messages. Oh, see, I can't handle that. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, you're going <laughs> to criticize me too. But I have a method. Like it, it is... I want to say like methodical, like I, I do have a method to my madness. Like it is organized for me. I, I can't not treat incoming email. Actually, wait, wait, hang on. So wait, do you have a thousand unread because you like you might somehow know the last one you looked at, you know, the subject line. So you actually read them all. Yes. They're just yeah, marked. They're all, they're all like handled. Okay. 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 So it's not that they're not looked at. It's just like sometimes... Like you said, I kind of moved the, I'll move the meter for, this is on me. This is bad habit. I would not recommend it. Like you said, I'll move the high watermark forward as like what I've kind of read through um, by looking at summaries. And most of me don't need to do anything, but I don't necessarily take the extra few milliseconds, seconds, whatever, to kind of put those in an appropriate folder or get them out of my inbox. So then every so often I have just pile through and via searching, you know, call all the junk that needs to get marked as as red so it's just sort of like another folder for me like there's the unread and red folder and they sit in the same logical folder in my inbox i would not recommend this approach you should definitely be more <laughs> organized than me so i'll tell, tell you what i do for unread is i have the um well at least on desktop i have like the double paned gmail where like you still see the list of emails while you can see, you know, an email you currently have clicked on. And then I have it set up to where whenever I uh, like hit the up arrow, it marks it as red. You know, it, like as soon as it gets to an email, it marks it as red. So I could just go up, 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 up on the up arrow and, uh, you know, and I'll end up with everything red at the end, but I won't actually look at ones that are like marketing and stuff like that. I, I do, I am pretty good about taking the time to unsubscribe to as many things as possible. 
does that work like in general? I guess at, at corporate mail, that should work pretty well, right? Like unsubscribing from something should make it stop emailing you. Yeah, I mean, even publicly, it's it's pretty good. I can only think of a handful of times where I actually had to block somebody because like block some marketing, you know, distribution because they weren't respecting it. Most of the time, it's just like a one click unsubscribe. But I think the most important thing you can do is to have folders. Folders are a total lifesaver. I'm not too sure what's the difference between the server side rules and the client side rules. That's one thing I wasn't ever totally sure about. So I think in some cases, so like you mentioned Gmail, I think it's a bit different because the most common ways of accessing Gmail are either web apps or progressive web apps. Like (laughs) they're on your phone, but they're still a web app. And so they're like the state of the client. But if you're using like, you know, what I guess that's pop or IMAP or whatever, you could have multiple different clients. And so if the clients are filtering, they're kind of notifying the server and moving rules. And you could have two clients with two different sets of rules. So if you access your emails from two different places and the clients weren't synced, you could end up with sort of like not good stuff. I think in Gmail, as an example, when you write a rule, it's just always a server side, right? Like it always in the background when the mail comes in, not when you fetch the mail, the server side stuff gets executed. Oh, that makes sense. So like you have a you have a client side rule, but your desktop's like not on. And so now like none of those rules are taking effect. So you're looking at email on your phone and it's unfiltered. Yep. Something like that. Yeah. I think most places have moved to server side. Although I will say I, I feel we at my company don't use Gmail. And in fact, I actually don't like Gmail. I preferred they killed it. This is a rant another time. Inbox. I, I I jived with the inbox way of doing it. And I was very organized. When inbox was a thing, inbox uh, is nice. They, they killed it, and now it's Gmail, and now I'm unorganized again. So I blame I blame bad tools. And I know there are other ones out there. People will send us links. I know there are lots of other people and folks doing doing things that are, are clever. I just yeah, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I don't know if uh, at some point I stopped getting ads. There was a period of time where I was getting um, you know Gmail uh, ads. So like you go to look at your email. And then the first email would actually be fake. It wouldn't be a real email. Um, that was super, super annoying. Um, they, they, they got rid of that maybe about a year ago or so. Um, and so that made Gmail kind of like, like there's, there's, there's not, that many, <laughs> yeah, not that many downsides to Gmail. I did like Inbox. What was, what was so magical about Inbox? I also remember loving Inbox, being really sad when they shut it down. But now it's been so long, I don't remember what was good about it. They've morphed Gmail over time to copy some of the UI things, but I think it was just like the way of handling the UI and like what was shown in the ordering of, of like how you went through messages and stuff, which is different. Uh, I think the complexity on their side is around like needing to support both the old way and the new way. And so... Well, one of the things I think they added was the swiping, right? So like in Inbox and then later in Gmail, you could swipe right to archive, swipe left to delete, or I don't know, maybe I have it backwards, but basically you swipe and it goes away. <laughs> you just know, it's just one of those things you could just do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we um, get on to our news of the show. Yeah. My news of the show is simplifying lines with the Douglas Puker. Did I get that right? Puker? Puker algorithm? Anyways. I know what this is, but I don't know how it's said. I have no idea how to pronounce that person's name. I'm sure I butchered uh, that person's last name. Anyways, this thing is really cool. And I found a particularly cool article where they kind of walk you graphically through how to do this. But I I was always really interested in the game Worms. Do you ever play this game? Yes. 
Yeah, so Worms was this, you know, pixel-based physics thing where uh, you know, there's also Scorched Earth that was kind of similar, but much more simplistic. Uh, yeah, and Scorched Earth, like, uh, things couldn't float. Like, like the, the ground always settled, and so it was somewhat of an easier problem. But, but you know, in Worms, yeah, there would be these floating islands, and you could walk on them, and you could bounce grenades off of them and stuff. Um, but anytime they, there's any kind of explosion or anything, you know, it would chip away at these islands and it would start to take away some of the pixels. And so I was always fascinated with this, like, like how do you bounce a grenade off of this pixel, like, you know, this, this 2D array of uh, this binary array of pixels. And so that kind of uh, led me to this algorithm, which is really cool. So basically, you know, you could imagine kind of tracing the outline of one of these islands and then just, you know, anytime there's an explosion or something, you know, retracing that part of it. Um, and, you know, maybe an explosion caused an island to split into multiple islands, and that's fine. You, you could detect that. But then you have this problem of, okay, now I've traced this island and I have this, like, you know, the outline, right, the shell of this island. How do I, like, put that into a physics engine, right? And, and you know, even, like, if you were to put every point in a physics engine, the angles would be all really jagged and stuff, right? And so looking at some game development sites kind of took me to this, which basically this algorithm is this really fast way of saying, okay, I have this, it could be a line, it could be a polygon, it could really be anything, but I have this, you know, line that's made up of a ton of points and I want to keep sort of the structure, you know, the, the, the you know, essence of that line, but get rid of, you know, a ton of the points. So it's a simple, um, unsupervised way to do that, um, which I thought was really cool. And the, the gist of it is you, you essentially like go from the start to the finish. I guess this wouldn't work if it's a loop. So there has to be other ways to do that. Uh, oh, I think it actually, it still works, but you have to adapt a little bit. But you, you go from the start to the finish and you you kind of draw a fat line, you know, like imagine like a rectangle that's oriented, right? Like a fat line from the start to the finish. And then you see like, okay, are all the points just in that line, in that in that rectangle, in that zone? If they are, you could just delete all of them. And now you have just a start point, a finish point, and a straight line. Um, but if there are some points that fall outside of that zone, then that means, you know, if you were to delete that point, you'd kind of be changing like the essence of this. So like maybe it kind of like is more of like a parabola or something, right? So if you find a point that's outside of the zone, then you kind of do this subdivide type thing, or it's, a, it's like a divide and conquer approach where you say, okay, let's go to that point and create a rectangle from the start to that point. And then a second rectangle from that point to the end. And now with these two rectangles, did I cover everything? And so you kind of keep going in this way. And uh, yeah, it also looks like really mesmerizing. So it's uh, if you ever wanted to make your own Worms game, this is how you would do it. Yeah, I think there's a, a few ways of doing this like line simplification. This one uses like you're kind of saying this fat line as like lateral stuff. I think there's some that use uh, sort of circular distance as well, depending on what you want to do. But yeah, you're trying to like preserve the shape, but also simplify the number of points. Yeah, exactly. Cool. My news article is how to pick a starter project. Now, ironically, or I, I guess this takes the 
stance initially of telling you how to pick a starter project for someone you want to get rid of. Um, and by illustration of all the things that you do to get rid of someone, highlighting how to not pick a starter project. Uh, and it's kind of a funny thing, but I guess uh, n nothing in here is sort of earth shattering, uh, but reminder that starter projects really are important for onboarding new folks, like those first things that you have them do and making sure that it works well. It also gets in a bit to how to choosing mentors and that kind of kind of stuff. And I just wanted to highlight because I think this is a really poorly thought through thing, like how to onboard new people to teams. And some companies will have like a company-wide onboarding process, but I think like still the importance of within a team, making sure new folks get up to speed and how that's like a joint thing across the manager, but also the members on the team. Uh, and so here it, it's highlighting things like pick a gigantic project that has vague requirements and goes cross team and cross discipline and is tracked at a very high frequency by upper management. Uh, these are all ways to inspire someone to quit on the spot and to to not not get brought up to speed. I think like oftentimes, even under poor circumstances, people do integrate into the team eventually. But I think like often those formative first few months are critical to kind of having a really positive experience and making sure that the team knows that they should be taking time away from their other tasks to onboard a new person. Uh, and I think like whenever you change jobs, it's always difficult in the beginning. Um, and I can look at these these comments and and think back to some of the times I've switched teams or changed companies and had starter projects. It's more or less uh, sort of, I guess we're intending to push me away. Maybe I was too dumb to realize that I, uh, <laughs> I should have, I should have changed jobs. No, just kidding. You know, your starter project is to uh, delete all the code that your boss wrote. <laughs> I, I did have a starter project that was, you're new to the team. The team has been divisive about coding style. So why don't you come in and start enforcing coding guidelines? Oh no, <laughs> that's, you gotta be kidding. Is that nope. real? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Anyways, let's yeah. Let, onto the <laughs> it, it, it is important, uh, and I think as well. If you say, well, okay, I'm not a manager, or whatever, I'm not assigning starter projects. I I think it's important to to know that this is a thing and a thing that people don't always do well. And so, if you're new to a team and you're not getting good work, like be communicative to your boss that like you know or your coworkers like, hey, this seems like kind of vague. Like I'm happy to work on it, but is there other stuff that I could you know. Be doing as well, like be, be proactive and being an advocate for yourself and trying to, you know, assuming that they're not doing it on purpose, like trying to get work that you think is cleaner. Uh, I would say like one of the more common unintentional mistakes is giving someone something you didn't realize that was a lot harder than it actually seemed. And so you give someone a project, you think it's really easy, and then they really, really struggle. This has happened to me before. And then it turns out once you sort of start reviewing what you're doing, people are like, oh, I did not realize this was that complicated. I just thought you were kind of slow. And it's like, well, people really should be assigning work that almost they would just sit down and do in an afternoon. Like it really should be too easy. Better for them to finish too fast than to get bogged down. Yeah, the other mistake I see a lot is, is where um, if there's a junior engineer, um, you know, someone will... Um, you know, a manager might say, oh, you know, I really wish I had time to, you know, work on Project X, which is some new project that the team, you know, no one on the team has time to do Project X, but if we did it, it's like this big win. And then and then somebody joins the company, and you say, oh, 
this person has, you know, 100% free time. They just joined. So we're going to put them on Project X. And it ends up being this really risky thing. And, and for your perspective, you feel like as a manager, you might feel like, well, I'm yeah, giving them opportunity. <laughs> yeah, this person has a chance to hit a home run and there's no downside because because uh they just joined and and you know they can uh pivot and you know they're not going to get evaluated right away or anything. This is actually a terrible idea, right? So, so the reality is is people are under kind of the most pressure to perform in the beginning. And so you know this advice here in the article about you know, put somebody on the main bread and butter project. Like I see people mess that up so many times. Um, but yeah, as, as Patrick said, you want, especially for junior folks, but even for senior folks, you want them to be exposed to, um, you know, the, the core essence of the company, even if your long-term plan is for them to try and invent something new. Cool. Uh, so my article is tic-tac-toe in a single call to printf. These these code golf things, I love these things. I've never tried it. I don't think I would enjoy actually building this. Um, it's more of like an art installation um, than than a you know coding exercise. But it is so freaking cool. Uh, so you know, as you might imagine, there's a ton of pound defines to make this a reality. There's a certain way in printf you can actually capture input. I did not know that. I didn't know it either. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm trying to find it here now. I mean, there's a whole document here on how they actually did it. Uh, anyways, there's a way you can capture input with printf, and they're hijacking that. And so basically, this prints a tic-tac-toe board, lets you type in uh, input and play games against against yourself. The entire thing is done in, in one printf call. I, there is a while loop, uh, while printf. Uh, I guess that's because every time you enter a key or something, right? But uh, really freaking cool. And they actually took the time to make it like actually visually artistic. So um, the entire program is spaced in a way where there's a like uh, ASCII art percent N um, in the program. <laughs> so it's uh, um, oh, they're actually actually I take it back. There is a scanf. Yeah, I see that in the argument to printf. There's a scanf. Oh, OK. So actually. No, but that's still crazy. I didn't know you could. It does not seem like a good idea. Oh, the scanf is inside the printf. Yes. Oh my gosh, my mind was just blown. It's a, <laughs> oh, no, oh, that's not that bad. It's just an in the argument string. So like comma scanf open print. So it's just a function call that's taking place, and then the result oh. going in as an argument. Okay, okay, okay. This is not well, as like sense. devious as cynical. Like as yeah, okay. This is so crazy, but I got it now. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got. Yeah, I got it too. Yeah. So okay. So it's it's a call to printf, but that printf has as an argument a call to scanf. So there, there's two functions, but the whole thing is freaking cool. Um, uh, I just I love uh, seeing stuff like this. So, so definitely check it out. It will uh, give you a um, a chuckle, and you can read through how it's implemented, which is which is very clever. It will give you a chuckle if you're either very against C or very deep in admiration for your C programming <laughs> language. I think uh, that those two folks may like everyone else. Uh, uh, Jason's description may be sufficient for you to realize you could save yourself the click. Well, you could copy paste this into uh, your terminal and uh, GCC it and then uh, play tic-tac-toe. It'd be a fun exercise. They even have instructions on how to do that if you're if, if you're there new were only program. a web browser where you could just like type a website and play web games that don't involve incredibly <laughs> ossificated C code.
<laughs> okay, oh, this man. yeah, this is pretty cool. I, I would say the name almost is also a good competitor for obfuscated. Uh, so they they did a good job naming it to seem to seem really sinister. It also claims printf <laughs> is Turing complete, which doesn't surprise me, but sounds horrible. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's wild. Uh, I, that's probably a, like a complexity measure of your language, which is like how many features of your language are themselves Turing complete. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I wonder, you know, I wonder what, so there's been historically been languages where I've had a hard time working with them. And I feel like that's pretty common. So one of them is Scala. Another one is Haskell. Those are two languages where I don't have strong opinions. I mean, I actually enjoyed Scala, but, uh, but I found that the programs that, you know, when you started to scale up the team size, Scala and Haskell both became really difficult for me at least, to understand. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder if there's somehow a connection. Like, I wonder if you could somehow take all of this anecdotal evidence and and regress it to say, okay, you know, yeah, somehow some complexity metric of the language causes it to balloon in this way. Interesting. So why is Python so bad as a programming language then? <laughs> what is what is the uh, zeitgeist no. on Python? Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to get demoted. We got to keep making progress. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know. We also have our JavaScript in here, too. Um, oh, my gosh. Okay. Mine is completely unrelated. It's not an obfuscated C code, although it probably does have C code on it. And that is the Artemis 1 project. By the time you listen to this, hopefully it's successfully launched. At uh, the time of recording, they've uh, sort of attempted the first launch, which got scrubbed. But... I want to say this had been a big deal for a long time for the United States government trying to send a rocket effectively back to the moon. This first one unmanned, eventually, you know, a manned moon base. Contrary to the last time that the United States to the moon, this one's actually being done much more internationally. Some of the sections of the rocket are actually done by uh, the European Space Agency in collaboration with NASA. So I feel like this is uh, a bit different in that way. Uh, leaving all the politics aside of the last one. Um, but, but I want to say, I feel like this came a bit out of the blue. Like, it is a big deal, I think. And I think that uh, it had been going on for so long, so much of a run. People kind of forgot about it. And then it was sort of like, oh, it's on the launch pad, getting ready to go. Uh, and so that's pretty exciting. So, yeah, I mean, again, politics aside, but I thought that back in like 2010 or something, they totally defunded NASA. So I was like really surprised to see this. So I really don't don't uh, know how, like what, what really transpired there. Yeah, I don't know about defunded NASA, but there's been a history of telling various government agencies in the United States like what to do, but then not giving the funding. So it's like a two-step process. First, you give them like a new mandate. And then you're supposed to like go and in the budget, sort of like budget for that new mandate. And so there can be like, hey, you need to go do X. And then we go to make the budget. We don't give you money to do X. So are we really telling you to do X or not? It's a bit ambiguous. Um, and so I think that's, that's true of NASA, but true of other, other government agencies. But I'm not sure on the particulars. But no, it hadn't been defunded. It had been sort of in some ways people will say uncancelable because it was involving so many states, so many companies, so much, you know, international cooperation. There's just all this stuff in it. It just sometimes, you know, estimation for timelines. We are not that software engineers, the only one who get them wrong. Um, but other companies get them wrong too. But no, I, 
I mean, leaving that aside, I think it's exciting. Like people quibble over the expense of it, but I think that giving that that sort of optimism and hope of going to space and putting people onto the moon and the immense amount of technological research that falls out as part of this, I I, I think it's an exciting thing. I won't justify that it's worth the cost or not. I don't know. I, I kind of it's hard to say. Yeah, but it's really I will hard say to say. That it, it, it's exciting. And like for, you know, having myself, children who are elementary age, you know, their teacher turned it on. They get excited about things about science. I think like from that stuff, it's really hard to measure just how big of an impact um, these kinds of things have. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about um, something related to this. I was talking about how you know, if you look at like the Sistine Chapel and, and the, uh, you know, the pyramids, like how, you know, we did these things that were kind of like really powerful and then also like like wholly unimportant at the same time like like uh like the pyramids so the pyramids are extremely cool and it's a tourist attraction and 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 I'm sure Giza like generates a lot of you know tourist revenue from it but like at the time like it was just maybe like a thing to do or is like a like a religious endeavor I don't actually know the history of the pyramids but 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 I feel like you know the the you know humanity is full of uh, these sort of endeavors where it's like not totally clear what to do, but you do feel like this is sort of like a milestone in humanity, whether it like turns into something uh, economical or, or not, right? It's always hard, right? I think these things are, are complicated, but from a celebration of what humanity can do uh, for along this like technology, you know, pushing the envelope, doing these new things, I think it's incredible. Also, there's been a theme of various space and rocket-related things throughout the history of the podcast. But, I mean, I think I, I said it, I think even for our predictions for this year, which we'll probably end up needing to, to slide out or whatever, but the just uh, the amount of new rocket hardware coming online and people doing things. We haven't had as many of these dual episodes, but there's a number of other sort of interesting uh, rockets coming to fruition. It's really cool that... Uh, soon our ability to access orbit and access things like the moon are going to be just so different than they were before. And I'm really excited to see what we're not anticipating about such a transformation. What do you think about the space slingshot? Have you oh, seen spin, this? Is it spin launch? I think that's the name, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know. You're talking, about, you're talking about the one that spins in the centrifuge that's in a vacuum and then launches. I mean, I think it's one of those... People have done stuff similar the, uh, before in research and giant, you know, artillery guns, basically, that would shoot rockets out. The, the rocket equation, which is, oh, this is not my area of expertise, but basically the fact that you need a huge amount of rocket fuel to lift your rocket. But you add rocket fuel and rocket fuel is heavy. So therefore, you need more rocket fuel to lift the rocket fuel to lift your rocket. And you end up with this sort of like cascade of stuff. And the earth is in a pretty heavy gravity well, right? Like it's, it's, the atmosphere is dense, the earth is massive, so it's pretty hard to get to orbit. And so if you can get a, just a you know, little percentage of earth, you know,'s diameter away or earth's radius up and sort of lessen the effects of gravity, lessen the effects of the atmosphere and just sort of get through those really quick by energy held in your launch device, not in your rocket, you simplify a ton of things. Of course, doing that has its own caveats with acceleration and stuff. But I actually, Spin Launch seems to know what they're doing. That is not necessarily always enough, but they built a, something at a scale people didn't really think was possible. I feel there's a lot of armchair quarterbacking. So I'm hopeful 
that it'll work because the idea is you have this giant circle that stands up on its side. It gets, gets almost all the way to a vacuum and just very, very little air left in it. And then they rotate this huge arm in the middle uh, with a rocket on one end, basically. And then at the right time, they unleash the rocket and it you know, shoots out like a sling, uh, you know, shoots up into the atmosphere and it gets through all that hard, dense part of the air, gets to a pretty high altitude and then lights its rockets. And so it can be a much cheaper, smaller, more compact, and you can launch a lot of times because you just load a new one up and you do the same thing again. Uh, and so, I mean, if it works for small satellites, it would be a huge unlock. Yeah, I mean, it looks really freaking cool. I mean, Patrick did an amazing job describing it, but you have to watch the video. It's just really, really cool to, to watch. Fingers crossed. I hope it works. And also, good luck, Artemis. And if you already know what happens in the future, well. <laughs> yeah. Wait, actually, so we should predict. Do we predict Artemis will launch in the next month? Okay, well, we're recording at the very, very end of August. So you're saying by the end of September. Yeah, so, so I think this show will go out in October. But anyways, so let's say September. Will, this, uh, will, the, will the rocket launch in September? Well, the rocket will have had launched in September. Um... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Nice job. I'm going to say yes, just because I want it to be true. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, uh, I feel like it will, too. I mean, they're so close, right? I mean, I think it was just some kind of uh, liquid leak or something. I mean, they could easily fix that. Flex seal. Just slap <laughs> that on there, and it's good to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now yeah. you know why Jason and I are not rocket scientists. All right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, it's amazing flex seal. I bought flex seal tape the other day. It actually is pretty awesome. I used it to fix a hole in our our pool. Like you know the pool has uh your pool has that thing which like goes on the bottom of the pool um and like cleans the bottom, you know? Okay. Like a, yeah, yeah, like a vacuum. I don't know you'd call it. Yeah, basically a pool vacuum type. Well, pool vacuum means something else. That's like a thing that you manually do. But anyways, so I used FlexZeal to uh, fix a hole in that. It actually worked pretty good. I was impressed. I think there was this, uh, there was this one I found online that I, I also ended up using for some other project that actually, it gets hot when you stretch it. And it like, oh. the, the tape like chemically bonds to itself or whatever. It's like wild. I mean, they have amazing, crazy tapes now on Amazon. Uh, we could talk about the tape that's like electrically conductive sort of through the thin part but not across the tape so along the long part it's not conductive but like so you can if you you can pass through the tape but not along the tape electricity whoa that's wild okay anyways all right, right. <laughs> oh it's actually one more shameless plug so uh there's a gentleman that i know who started a company called bitrip and bitrip is uh basically I mean, I'm probably going to totally butcher this, but imagine just like a roll of tape with QR codes. And so the oh. idea is if you're out in the field, like you're an electrician, you know, like a, you know, a public utilities worker or something, you could just like slap this on anything and then you scan the QR code uh, and put some data into some app. And then someone behind you can like scan the same tape like a year later. I see this. So it's like every rip is like a unique code. Is it so is it like a non-repeating pattern? Like a what do they call that? Oh man. You know, um, I don't know the details. I always thought it was just like tape with QR codes on it, but I haven't actually seen the product. Oh, okay. Well, Let me see. Bit rip. <laughs> yeah, it looks a little bit like QR codes, but they're not exactly 
QR codes. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's almost like a barcode or something, but it's somehow there's a unique fingerprint. Now I'm curious what the... You brought this up, man. Now we got to know what the uh, the secret is. We need to get the BitRip guy on the show. <laughs> <laughs> 600 GPS tracking tags. Embed photos, documents, audio. Oh, yeah, it's definitely not a QR code. It's, it's some kind it of... It looks like a Penrose tiling. If I just had to take a naive guess, I think it's a Penrose tiling, which is like a non-repeating infinite series. I think you're right. Yep, yep. But okay, oh, we probably messed up his pattern. We probably should be here like reverse engineering that tape on the... <laughs> yeah. So, so how many of you think that in the month of September we'll get sued by the BitRip guy? <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, it's time for Book of the Show. <laughs> my book of the show is The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. So I remember first hearing about Stoicism a long, long time ago. And thinking, thinking to myself, oh, that's that's pretty much me. I live like a really simple, relatively simple life, always trying to simplify things. And uh, it kind of really resonated with me. And so years and years later, I decided to read this book. Marcus Aurelius is, I don't, I don't I wouldn't say he's the founder of Stoicism, but but he's the person who really kind of popularized it. And I guess, you know, it was a bit of a, of a um, what's the word? Um, like, I, I think I'd overhyped it too much in my mind. You know, it's kind of like, actually, Patrick, you brought this up before the show, how it's like another one of these books is The Art of War by Sun Tzu, where like everyone talks about these books all the time. And you think, oh, this is like going to be something that's going to totally blow my mind. And what I actually found was that so many people have already talked about this book that like I already kind of knew uh, what was going to happen. And so it really... It's, it's almost like kind of watching the movie of Jurassic Park after you've read the book or maybe Harry Potter or whatever, any of these. So it's kind of like, you know, it was a little bit underwhelming uh, because I'd already kind of known the material. But I felt like it was still a good book about halfway through it. Um, if you don't know what stoicism is or or if this sounds interesting, if, if you're interested in how to lead a simple life, like what that means sort of like metaphysically and everything, check it out. It's a, it's a good book. It's also, you know, obviously really dated. I think Marcus Aurelius was what, like a Greek uh, emperor, I think, or Roman emperor. I think yeah, Roman Caesar, emperor, right? A Roman emperor. Roman emperor. There you go. So, uh, so yeah. So I think it's a, it's going to be a very dated book, but it's a, a little difficult to read. But I think it's nice, and you know, it could be sort of a something that you do, you know, while you're in the car and just kind of have it in the background. And um, you know, and there's probably a lot more contemporary books on. Uh, on stoicism and, and the other kind of philosophies I, I highly recommend. I think understanding some of those philosophies and approaches, even if you're not saying, hey, I'm actively seeking to model my life or to do this as like a key tenant, I think still are, are useful for helping see how other people think to just like have new ideas and to, to kind of like question if there's some nugget of value there for some part of your life rather than necessarily reading a self-help book where you're saying, I'm going to adopt this as like everything about who I am and make it my core identity. I, I feel sometimes there's, I don't want to say like a pressure, but uh, in my head, at least like a thought, like, oh, if I read this, I'm kind of wanting to adopt it as like, a, and, I, and I don't think that's accurate. I think like Jason's pointing out, like you can read it and still learn a lot from it. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I was really fascinated when, um, you know, we were working on uh, YouTube um, I was really fascinated at like what made things go viral, you know, like what actually makes things go viral. And one thing that uh, 
I learned in that process is that a lot of things that you think are organic are actually not organic, right? So there's there's actually a lot of uh, viral videos where you look at that and say, oh man, you know, perfect timing, but it's actually highly, highly scripted. So it's very hard to tell what's real, what's fake. But either way, I think that what I noticed was a lot of uh, viral content on really anything, any type of media, it sort of taps into this kind of like latent, I don't know how you describe it, just like latent, like shared uh, common common sort of culture, like the, the sort of like hive mind of, of humanity or maybe hive mind of, if you want to be more local, like hive mind to your country or your region or whatever. It's, it's like, it like doesn't directly say like, uh, like, hey, you know, we're going to talk about stoicism today, but it, but it just like it's it's it sort of taps into a lot of that sort of latent energy. Like Harry Potter is the example that keeps coming up in my mind. How if you actually look, almost all of those stories, like like the, the, the at one point they fight a snake, and that snake, like Harry Potter fighting the snake, is like you can you can see the parallel to this other like ancient story that that people read for like hundreds and hundreds of years. And so it's like you have this evolutionary like footprint, you know, and, and really popular content sort of like taps into like piggybacks on that on that footprint. Um, and so yeah, reading like a lot of these canonical books will give you kind of like an understanding into into that, which would help you if you ever wanted to write, uh, you know, or produce some content, uh, like like write a book or or uh, or anything like that 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 uh, wants to tap into that that same energy. Well, as tradition holds, uh, Jason gave us a very highbrow, uh, very <laughs> thoughtful book. This may be a bit late, but we've not done as many of these recently. So uh, it was all the fad during um, sort of like the COVID at home stuff to to kind of bake sourdough. I, I see that. I see that meme. Um, I remember that. Mine is, mine is a book about bread baking, flour, water, salt, yeast by a gentleman named Ken Forkish. Uh, and there are a lot of books about bread making and artisan bread and um i think this one for whatever reason just reading it in the stories I, it it really kind of like made me excited to try the recipes to do them to take the approach i just thought it was a very thoughtful way of of thinking about bed break uh, bread baking there we go, I can. Uh, and um you know just using simple ingredients i guess they call it sort of like a lean bread which is there's no there's no fat in it right just flour water salt and yeast um, they of Wait, course is, have is that literal? Recipes. Like, do they literally put fat in bread? Yeah, so an enriched bread. So, like, if you, oh, I'm, I'm like a challah bread, or uh, you know, some like an egg roll, right? Or uh, like a yeast, you put egg or butter or oil. Like a lot of pizza doughs have oil in them. Wow. Um, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, pizza dough. Yeah, yeah. and so and so they, those would be like enriched in some way with some kind of fat, and so the like. And a lot of bread we eat has a little bit of that. And so kind of going back to this very basic sort of loose shaped, you know, round bread gained popularity. I know in like on the West Coast of America, the the sort of like Portland and San Francisco, these places have like kind of developed a, a, a renaissance of this style of bread making. But if you're interested in bread making, which most of you probably aren't, that's fine. Uh, this I would encourage you to check out this book. I really like this book. I baked a lot of the recipes in here and had a good time. You know, I don't get super, super into it. Probably should do it more, but it does take quite a while. It's an endeavor, but it feels good at the end to really eat it. And there is something hugely different about eating a loaf of bread, you you know, smelling it, 
cooling it, eating it that you made versus, you know, going to the store and, and buying one. Uh, and so I think, I think it's something that people should try uh, at least once. Yeah, this is super cool. So, so I was looking up the author to see if Ken Forkish is the real name or not. <laughs> it just seems like too good to be true to write a book about cooking. Your name has fork in it. But so far, everything I see, I look up, say that it's not a pseudonym. There's actually a real guy named Ken I Forkish. Did, I didn't even think about that until you said it. Yeah, I think he runs a restaurant in, I think, Portland. That's right. Yeah, you got it. He runs a bakery in Portland. And he actually, before opening that bakery in 2001, he uh, worked in Silicon Valley as a tech worker for uh, oh, wait, 20 years. Oh, maybe this is why it resonated. I, I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah. So that's wow. So 20, so that means he joined, he went to Silicon Valley in 1981. That was probably when it was literally Silicon, you know, like making chips and everything. Then yes, uh, worked there 20 years, opened a bakery. Good for him. Very cool. All right. So time for tool of the show. My tool of the show is this app called Pythagorea. I guess sticking with the Greco-Roman theme that I have going here. Um, so Pythagorea is this game that where you uh, you basically have to solve geometric puzzles. And so that sounds like it would be really boring, like you know, the, doing math homework as a game or something. But they actually do a great job of making it really engaging. You know, one of the things that they do really nicely is, you know, the, the game is played on this 16-point this grid, or maybe, no, it's more than that, this 36-point grid. So there's a six-by-six six grid of dots. And so, you know, the first level is very simple. There's you know, a dot on the left side, dot on the right side. They're like, you know, find the dot in the middle. You tap the middle of the screen, you move on. And then, you know, it kind of tells you, hey, you know, you have two dots, you know, make like an isosceles triangle. And so you can drag lines between the dots to, to make triangles, but you're restricted by these dots. And, and the dots, the fact that you can only draw a line either from dots to dots, or uh, you can make new dots where two lines intersect. That's where it starts to get really complicated. So for example, there was one puzzle where you, you kind of needed a point that was sort of in the middle of four points. So you needed a point where there wasn't one. And so what you have to do to solve that is you can just make a little X, right? So imagine your mind like four points, you know, in a square shape, right? And if you draw the two diagonals, now you have an X, right? And so then the middle of that X, you can actually tap that and now make a fifth point in the middle. And so you can now like when you get to the harder levels, now it really opens it up because you can really make a point anywhere as long as you can figure out how to get two lines to intersect at that place, right? So, so the hard puzzles start getting really hard where it's like, okay, I need to go to like seven sixteenths of the way between these two points. And so like, what lines can I draw to like make that happen? And so it's actually, it's really fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things that's like very hard to explain, you know, audio, um, um, through audio, uh, but I highly recommend you check it out. The other thing is it's completely free. Um, it's a donationware um, game. So I went and gave them, I think it's like a dollar or whatever that they're asking for, but, um, but you can play the entire game cover to cover, totally free, no ads, uh, nothing like that. And uh, I found it really stimulating. Like the other thing is, is as soon as you get it right, it kind of dings and you, you know you got it right. You're not really guessing. And so some of the levels, you know, I would stare at it, stare at it, stare at it. And I'd kind of find out, okay, here's sort of the trick. 
Uh, and then, you know, you get that trick, you solve the puzzle. It's, it's very satisfying. I felt like they did a good job with the pacing. Um, you know, a game like this, it's very easy to make a level that's extremely difficult. Um, and, and then you just can't move on. And it's really frustrating. Um, they did a good job of, of ramping up the difficulty. And one of the other things they did to help with the pacing is you, the game is broken down into chapters, but the chapters aren't in you know, increasing complexity. They're just different phenomena, geometric phenomena. And you can actually play all the chapters asynchronously. So if you get stuck in chapter two, you just go to chapter three. So I felt like that was uh, uh, also really clever game design. And uh, yeah, definitely check it out. Totally free. So there's nothing to lose. Awesome. That's really cool. So now you're going around with like a compass and ruler and making dodecagons and like showing <laughs> yeah. all your friends. Everything looks like a geometric problem. It's like, okay, you know, this door won't close. Let me pull out Pythagorea, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, mine is, we might have even had this as a tool to show before, but that is Google Keep. Um, I feel a lot of people may have heard of this before, um, but some, some may have not. And it's, a way of doing note taking. But I think the power that I had recently realized about Google Keep is having sticking with it and using it and jotting what amounts to kind of like post-it notes uh, in the app or on the web or sending links as like a way to doing bookmarks and putting pictures in and just sort of gathering a lot of unorganized data and then just being able to be at search it, to be able to go to like dates, to be able to, you can do categorization, but even just leaving it messy. And then putting stuff there over time and building it up. And then, you know, some something happened to me where I was like, oh, I, I think I had written this down one time or I was cooking some dinner and I was like, oh, I think I last time debated what temperature to put this at. And like, oh, let me go see. Oh yeah, sure enough, I, I took a note here because it felt like something I'd want to remember. And so just putting these little like jots of a note or a picture or a recipe or a link uh, and being able to find those things later. Anytime where I try to figure out something that I knew and I, I, I don't or couldn't find. I always try to make sure to go put it in there the second time because if I needed it you know, twice, probably going to need it again. And so building that up over time, I think there are some open source or different alternatives and, and other platforms that people use. So this is I, my tool is Google Keep, which Google allows you to use for free. It comes with all the traditional Google cons, I guess. Um, but <laughs> that is a pro. Uh, but then, you Wait, know, are there ads I, or no ads? I don't think I've seen ads, but people in general have a love-hate relationship with Google these ah, days, which I completely understand. Fair enough. And so don't put any private information there, I guess, that you're not willing to share with Google. Uh, but you know, using a tool like this, I guess, would be my shout out, which is something where you can just very low overhead, not super structured, just sort of put your information in and allow it to kind of accumulate. Uh, we talked about the importance of email organization. If you're super organized, maybe you don't need this. I already fessed up in the beginning that something I need to do better at. But, uh, you know, I think here, this is a, a way for me to, to kind of not lose those little ideas. Yeah. Do you, um, do you rely on search then to, to retrieve the notes? Okay. So the notes aren't like hierarchical or anything. No, I've seen stuff and always been intrigued about doing that. I feel like the hesitation for me for hierarchical or like linked notes and stuff would be really cool, except that I just know that I'm not going to put, I'm going to worry more about where in the hierarchy goes. And then therefore I'm not going to put stuff in if I don't think it'll fit yeah. in the hierarchy. That makes so sense. So here it's like, I need to just record it. Yep. Yep. Totally makes sense. I wonder if like, maybe we could automatically generate the hierarchy. Oh, what do you that mean? That'd be pretty cool. 
Like maybe with some unsupervised learning. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, if only our oh episode today was about... <laughs> How did that happen? Cluster my notes. <laughs> Clustermynotes.com. That needs to be... Uh... Oh, did I tell you it's a bit, a bit of a side topic and then we'll jump in on supervised learning. I made a website called visual-if.com. The idea is... The UI is very clunky, but it's an interactive fiction game, but it runs Dolly as you're playing the game. So, you know, you, you type in, like, you know, you get past the intro screen, and it's like, look up, look down, move east. Like, one of these interactive fiction is like Zork or Adventure, right? But anytime there's a room description or anything, um, Dolly is running in the background, and you get, like, some crazy you know, art installation of uh, of whatever that is. And it really actually makes the games really fun. If you've played uh, interactive fiction before, uh, you know, if you've played a particular game before, you could play it again and just see all these really trippy pictures with it. See if it matches up with your, what you were envisioning when you, uh, when you were played it the first time. I, I, I'm not sure if I went to the right spot or not. It's either really well done to be confusing or... I'm on some other random person's website. So it's Photopia is the game that starts when you... Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, it says, would you like instructions? Yes, the UI sucks, (laughs) I'll admit it. So it says, would you like instructions? You actually have to click on that and then type no or yes. Oh, okay, okay. And then it says, will you read me a story? You have to actually click again. And then now you're in the game. I need some way to like, maybe I should make like a little intro screen before the game. Kind of tell people what they're in for. Nice. This is cool. I mean, these pictures are like kind of creepy. I'm not going to lie. The ones I'm getting. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, there's like a person skiing or something. At least that's what I see. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was pretty, pretty fun. I might try and uh, double down on that if I have time. So I found out people didn't really understand how to use that that product. Like I just asked people, they're like, I don't really understand what I'm supposed to be clicking on. But, you know, as as you kind of work on any type of product, you know, definitely you can show it to your friends. Um, you could try it out yourself, but you will eventually want to show it to strangers, right? And as we talked about with uh, Kevin in the marketing episode, right, eventually you're going to give your either app or website or whatever you're building to uh, the public. And you're not going to be able to really look over their shoulder and find out what they were thinking about it. So, you know, definitely we talked about marketing and surveys and all of that. So there's, there's a whole human element too. But but another thing you want to do is is you want to kind of gain insights from data. So ideally, you know, imagine if you're making uh, like this app, for example, this visual IF, you know, I could, I mean, I didn't, I didn't implement this, but I, you, know, you could imagine, uh, you know, I could track where people are moving their mouse or what they're clicking on or if they're clicking, how long they're spending on that site. And that could, you know, all go into some kind of report that would give me information. And then I could even go a step further and A-B test. I could try a new version of the site, see if it improves, right? The challenge is, you know, all of this data that you're going to get is going to be highly unstructured. Right. So imagine you know, it's going to start with these print logs that maybe you did when you were doing development. So, you know, print, you know, person clicked on a page or print the page ID. 
or print, uh, you know, person moved the mouse to the to the bottom of the page, right? And you have to somehow turn that into something that you can look at, you know, some type of graph that you could look at and say, oh, here's some, you know, thing that I can do to make things better. And so that's at a high level, like one of the main things that we want to do with unsupervised learning is take, you know, a lot of raw information and like, you know, the, the, one of the biggest examples that is used repeatedly is Wikipedia, you know, take all of Wikipedia and can you just learn something from reading, you know, you know, having a computer read all of Wikipedia? So that's basically what, what unsupervised machine learning is all about. And uh, yeah, I think Patrick, you, uh, you know, brought this show topic up to, to, to the table. I think it's a, it's a great show topic and something that I am really passionate about. So, Yeah, I mean, I think like, like Jason was saying, this taking your data and sort of like helping to structure it. But I think, and, and I made the joke about, about clustering earlier, I feel that sometimes um, Jason is a machine learning, let's say, practitioner, right? Like that's, that's his trade. I'm not. So in general, I try not to do it, not because I don't know what it is or can't do it, but just because it comes with certain, I don't know, I don't say expectations. And so when I set out to do work, it's like the, the engagement model I have with the data that I have in front of me and with the task at hand is a bit different than Jason, Jason might have as a machine learning practitioner. At the same time, I think this area in parts has a lot of overlap between, and I'm just making, I don't know if that, there's probably a better word, but sort of machine learning practitioners and sort of other folks. And so I think there are things like, for example, like clustering where there may be features of your data or heck, there might even already be numbers that, you know, you have along multiple dimensions, you know, just even two or three dimensions, where if you clustered them together and looked at them, that would already be quite helpful. And you may say, well, that's not machine learning. That's not, you know, there's no neural network. There's no, you know, whatever. But I, I think that's okay. I think things where you're fitting a, a, you know, a regression to your data and trying to say, you know, hey, look, there's numbers here and I'm fitting a line to it so I can think about what the next number would be or between two numbers or out past the last data point I have, right? I think those are kinds of things where you are overlapping in a lot of this and learning about those things and thinking about them in those is, is another tool in the toolbox. We talk about that all the time. And so I'm pretty excited to talk about some of these things because I think a lot of them have value even to people who wouldn't call themselves machine learning practitioners, but anyone who has data, which tends out to be a lot of people or most people have some amount of data that they're trying to work with and ways of organizing, you know, cutting that data down, smoothing the data, thinking about the data, all those kinds of things. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine like you have a bunch of data around, you know, people who visit your website, right? And so you want to set up, you know, clusters, you want to set up kind of cohorts. For example, you, you, you might learn that there's somehow like there's a, a lot of identity around age. So it's like you're, the people visiting your website are either, you know, really young or really old for whatever reason. And so maybe they're, they're coming for two different reasons. You have to figure that part out. But, you know, clustering will kind of looking at the centroids, the centroids are the centers of the clusters. That you've uh, you developed can give you a lot of information. So, for example, you might have you know a whole bunch of different features, and then you might do clustering, which basically says for each of the data points, and a data point would be sort of like a set of features. So maybe you know, a data point is a person who's 
come to play your your game and a set of features about them. Like, how do you describe this person, right? And so then after you've done, you're, you're finished with a clustering algorithm. Now each person, they're going to be assigned to one cluster if it's a hard clustering. If it's a soft clustering, then they could be assigned to like some, some mixture of clusters, right? But, but that's neither here nor there. So now you can look at this, at this, at sort of like these, these clusters that people are assigned to, and you could find the center of them. In other words, given this group of people who are all assigned to cluster A, you know, what is the center point there? So what is like the person who would be most aligned with cluster A, like this hypothetical person who just perfectly lands in the middle of the cluster? And you say, okay, this is sort of an archetype. Like this is, there's something unique about this group of people. Um, you know, you can also do this with like uh, faces if you're trying to do face recognition, or even if you're trying to do object recognition, you can, you can, you can even do clustering on images and say like, okay, I have this huge bank of images and they're falling into one of several categories. So I think, you know, clustering has, uh, yeah, has been used for, for tons of different things. You can also then, you know, do machine learning on top of the clusters. Um, what have you used clusters for in your, in your work? Yeah, I think like one of the things that came up recently is uh, we noticed that which which I guess like just thinking about your data is like we were doing some processing and sometimes certain configurations of input were causing like the data to take a lot longer than other configurations. Uh, sorry, speaking vague, but whatever. Uh, and so um, we were trying to kind of understand like, is there a difference or are there features in one? And so this, what you kind of alluded to, it's exactly right, which is, hey, we have a whole bunch of measurements, like the size of the input data, the, like, let's just say it was text, right? Like, how many characters are there? How many lines are there? You know, how many punctuation marks would there be, right? Things which we could kind of look and say, hey, is there something about this that's making the processing take longer or not? And once we sort of like, you know, kind of started plotting it out and saying, oh, okay, hang on, let's look at what the clusters are of these like sort of easy inputs and hard inputs. And like, what, what, oh, okay. Well, look, these hard inputs all have, you know, a lot of extra punctuation in them. And then, you know, realizing that the processing we were doing was going to cost a lot more when that happened, right? But we didn't kind of, it was vague enough that it's, it's a bit difficult to uh, sort of know that in advance and just look at your code and say, hey, actually, I see here, we do all this extra work in, you know, punctuation. It was, it was a sort of like second order effect that was causing it. And so by doing this clustering and just looking at the results and saying, oh, look, these things are different than those things allowed us to, to kind of say, hey, up front, let's check for that and handle them specially uh, or, or maybe decompose them further or do something special. And so um, that's what we use it for. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, one area where you see a, a lot of clustering is around log, you know, log ingest and log reading. So imagine, you know, you have a, you have a website. The website has a MySQL database. It's got, you know, servers, you know, backend servers. It's got the JavaScript on the client. And all these things are generating logs, right? Your server, your, your database is generating all these logs like, oh, you know, I'm getting full up or, oh, like the utilization is too high. Or I'm actually, to be honest, have you ever looked at a database log, like a MySQL log? No. I've never Not done either. either. I just assume it works. <laughs> it's a, it shows that we're, ter we're terrible DBAs. But, you know, it's generating a ton of logs. And, you know, if your database like goes down or all of a sudden it takes, uh, I, I do have some uh, 
actually like there's a lot of popular websites that are only run by like 10 people <laughs> you know what i mean like or i think craigslist is famous for having just extremely small staff for such a popular website but uh, uh you know eventually like you'll run into this where your site just doesn't load and uh, you're going to have to go step through all of these so you look at the client say okay the client's fine you, know, you go to the server logs and it just like says you know, uh, it's just uh, waiting on the database access, uh, wait database results. Then you go to the database, it's like, yeah, utilization is 100% and you have to end up doing something, right? Um, so you're getting all these logs. A lot of it is code that you haven't written, right? Because they're logs from programs that you're using. And you need some way to say, okay, can I separate the signal from the noise, right? Like, like, is there, like, like is this log actually interesting? Um, and, and actually a lot of these systems like Sentry and Bugsnag and these other systems use clustering. So what they'll do is they'll take every log line and, uh, they'll do what's called an embedding, which we can get to later, but, but they'll basically take every log line and turn it into a point in some space. So imagine some cube, but it's like a hypercube. It's like, uh, you know, a 200 dimensional cube or something. Actually, we talked about it in my mind. Ooh. Yeah, I got the 200 dimensional cube. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing it in my mind. That's how like Magnus Carlsen plays chess or whatever, you know. <laughs> but uh, we talked to Ido Liberty about embeddings on, on that show. Um, and so, yeah, you have this big cube and you've, you've figured out a way to take these lines of log and put them in this cube, right? So if I have a log line that's printing every second, that's like, you know, things are good. You know, it's like 1901, things are good. 1902, things are good. That's going to look the same, right? It's always going to say things are good and then some kind of, of date, right? And so since it's so similar, and even the date, the, the number, the timestamp is also kind of similar, those will likely end up close together in this space, right? Once you've done this embedding. And so you can throw all these logs into that space and then do clustering. And chances are the, you know, things are good message will get its own cluster if there's so many of them. And then you could just throw them all away, right? Uh, you could also do things like say, okay, this line of log isn't even really near any of the clusters. So it must be something pretty unique, pretty special. Um, so maybe this one I should, you know, send an alert or something like that. And that's, that's called outlier detection. And, um, that's also, you know, it's a, it's a really hard problem, but there's a bunch of great, um, libraries. There's PyOD. Um, there's a bunch of great libraries for outlier detection. Um, and, and, uh, they're all kind of, it's all very related to, to clustering. So what are some other examples of unsupervised learning? Yeah, I think a lot of these t like words, like unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning, a lot of them have become kind of really nebulous, right? As all of these fields have kind of like like uh, overflowed, right? Um, but now there's there's the hot thing is sort of self supervised learning, um, and the idea with that is it's still unsupervised in the sense that you know you don't have a human. Um, actually, we should probably talk about that. So, so supervised learning is typically where you have a human in the loop. So imagine if I'm playing chess and I train some model to mimic my moves. So if I move the pawn, 
then I tell some model, hey, when you see this board, I want you to move the same pawn to the same place. And so it's supervised. I'm a supervisor, right? And it is um, just trying to mimic this, right? Now, unsupervised would be a little different. Unsupervised would be where, for example, you might train an autoencoder. So, so you might say, here's a picture of a chessboard. I want this, this algorithm to put, uh, uh, you know, embed that picture. So find a function that takes this picture of this chessboard and puts it and creates a point for that picture somewhere in this space. And then I want another function that takes that point and creates the picture again, right? And so you're going from the picture to the point back to the original picture. And so when you do this and you train this model, it, it, it ends up having to represent you know, the, the essence of that picture in that point. So for example, let's say all of my pictures have the same chessboard and it's on a black table, right? And it's the same camera setup. It's like a tripod. So it's very reliable, very stationary. It's all pictures of this black table with this chessboard on it. So it can just recover the black table without needing any extra information, right? So because every single point that we draw in that cube when you go back to draw the picture, you're, you're going to need that black table. And so that's where like this really powerful compressive uh, ability comes in. So you, you actually, you know, the points now don't need to differentiate based on the table. They're all going to have the table in it. And so, you know, if two points are close together, then that means that the two images they generate must be similar even given the similarities that there are broadly. Like they must be even hyperlocal. Uh, they must be similar. Otherwise, those two points will get will get pulled apart. Um, and so the way the autoencoder works is, you know, you generate the chess the chessboard. It's not going to look exactly right, so you have some error. And then you say, okay, you know, this this pixel is like too dark, or you drew a pawn here and you really shouldn't have. It's empty. And so you you know, given that you know the right answer, you just tell the model, hey, here's the right answer. Adjust yourself. And it will figure out how to use that volume, that embedding volume in the best way or in a good way to be able to generate all of those pictures, not just one of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that was that was pretty deep. But here, I guess the when we were talking about like clustering, you don't necessarily like you mentioned there, like the right answer. There's no way to necessarily feedback. So you're like. You might, as a, a human, tune something or do something, like the number of clusters. but And there may be algorithms you do that, but there's really no necessarily right answer. When you're talking about it's still unsupervised, but this sort of like autoencoding, you're kind of giving a problem, constricting the amount of information that can be shared between sort of like the left half and the right half, and then trying to say like, you need to simplify down to a representation and then reconstitute that representation back to the original and then look and compare the two. So you have a, a well-defined metric for saying like, hey, how well did you do at your task? And so you algorithmically are supervising it, but as a human, you're not sort of like at each interval, sort of like labeling something or giving a, a behavior to emulate. Yeah, that's right. And the reason why all of this kind of comes together is, you know, clustering 
you know, imagine you're, you're looking at a group of people, like you're in a helicopter and you're looking down at a stadium full of people or something, or you're looking at a football game or something, right? There's these little dots, like they're maybe the size of ants or something running around on this football field. So like when you cluster, you're going to be using sort of the geometry of the field, right? So if somebody is twice as far away, then that really has a big impact on whether they're going to be in that cluster or not with these other group of people, right? Um, and so for all of clustering, you need to have a space that's pretty uniform. So like, for example, let's say you fed a bunch of features into some clustering. And one of your features is person's age in milliseconds. And the other feature is person's height in meters, right? Well, like one is enormous, right? Your age in milliseconds, it's some huge number. And so the clustering algorithm will totally ignore the other feature because your height in meters is, you know, I don't know, from, you know, I guess 0.5 to three or something, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's such a small range. Uh, actually, I guess there's nobody nine feet tall, but anyways, so your height in, your height in, I'm trying to figure out the, the tallest person in the world is what, eight foot? Anyway. So, you know, your range is tiny. It's like a, a three units, right? But your, your age in milliseconds is enormous. And so the clustering algorithm will just cluster ages until you're, you know, um, not pay attention to the other one. And so, you know, if you're trying to cluster images or text or some of these things, you quickly run into this problem where, you know, the thing isn't geometric. And so the clustering is, can't really take into account different dimensions in a way that's fair. And so the nice thing about this autoencoding is, you know, the way that the loss kind of propagates backwards from the correct chessboard to that latent space to the input chessboard, the way that, that those dots move and the way that, that the things the things kind of shake up ends up creating like really nice spaces where all the dimensions have relatively the same importance. This is interesting. So yeah, so you're, you're training both halves, but you may be taking, I, I guess you were calling it like the latent space in the middle, the encoded thing and doing some, using it as input to other parts of your system or sort of like clustering in that sort of more well-formed space so that you can say things about it, even if you never end up reconstituting, like there's really no reason for you to get back to the original chessboard. Like you had it as input, like you could just use it. You didn't really need that part, but it helps you to get that middle part that you could then use to do clustering on. Yeah, exactly. So, so now let's imagine, you know, imagine we have a bunch of people who, who go to your website, or we could even stick with the football analogy. We have a bunch of football players right? And we have a bunch of, uh, you know, statistics about them. And these statistics are all over the place. Some of them are important. Some of them aren't important. The units are all different. And so if we just feed these players into some clustering algorithm, then uh, it's, it's, you know, going to have a really hard time. Like maybe basketball. I know, I know more about basketball. So, you know, basketball, these people score a lot of points, but their height you know, in feet, let's say, in, in decimal feet is going to be relatively small. So someone might score, you know, 20, 30 points, but they're only like seven feet tall. And so the, so you have like different scales there as well, right? Um, you know, or assists or rebounds, um, you know, number of minutes played. Um, you know, and so all of these have different, you know, and even slight differences in units can can really matter. You could do some type of, let's say, contrastive 
learning, which is a self-supervised approach. So you might say, here's a, here's a list of players who I felt played very similarly. So I could come and say, okay, you know, Shaquille O'Neal and Dikembe Mutombo, they're both centers, really tall, strong people who just can, are strong enough that they can just push their way through and dunk the basketball, right? Those people are very similar. So I'm going to pull these two people together. So, you know, whatever their features are, you know, they're going to, we're going to create sort of a point for these two people based on their features. And then we're going to say these two points need to be closer together. Then I'm going to take, you know, Shaquille O'Neal and like Anthony Hardaway. And so Anthony Hardaway is like a three-point shooter, like small person, like for basketball standpoint, small person who goes and shoots shots from far away. So these people clearly are, are far apart. You might even actually just use the positions, right? They, you know, the, the, you might say, okay, all the centers should be close together. And, and then take two people who are from two different positions, they should be far apart. And so in this way, you're not, um, it's not supervised learning because you're not saying, okay, you know, Shaquille should be right here or, you know, Shaquille should make like this many points or something. You're basically saying, you know, these people should be closer together. These pairs should be close together. These pairs should be far apart. And, and it's contrastive learning. It's, it's self-supervised if you can automate all of that without a human in the loop. You know, basketball is a weird example because at some point a human did decide you should be a center, right? So maybe not the best example, but you could even imagine like uh, doing contrastive learning on images. So you could say, uh, here's a bunch of images that are on the same website. And because just by virtue of them being on the same website, they should be pulled together. And then here's two images from two different websites. They should be pushed apart. And so if you do this and uh, you have a low learning rate, because that's going to be a weak signal, right? But if you do this and you have a ton of images and you've scraped a lot of the internet, you'll end up with an embedding that's, that's really powerful. And so um, contrastive learning and auto-encoding, where you feed in the same thing that you're trying to predict, um, are two ways of generating like really nice spaces that then you can do clustering and other things with. This is awesome. So I we were sort of giving examples and, and sort of saying the algorithm, well, yeah, algorithmic approach, I guess, to doing this. What are some like applications of what people do with the, I mean, we talked about outlier detection for logs. I think that was, that was a good one we were talking about. It's like classifying things. Like, what are some other examples of uh, applications of this process? Yeah, I mean, you know, all of the language processing is now pretty much done in this way. So, for example, um, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to train a model, let's say, to translate French to English, you know, you would have to pay people to, you know, manually translate tons and tons of things, like literally millions of sentences, and then you would train, you know, your model on these sentences. And you would you would have some translation that just goes from French to English, right? It's extremely expensive, right? So now what they do is, um, you know, they will do what's called a um, word embedding. So basically, there, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do this. So so one way would be um, a self supervised approach where you say, given all the words up to this word, so. Um, you know, like what was it called? Like the brown, 
What is that one that's like you see all the, the quick time? Brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So you say like I didn't know this. That the reason that's a sentence is because for handwriting is it uses it's like the the shortest sentence that uses all the letters of the alphabet or a very short sentence which uses all the letters of the alphabet. What? So it was a penmanship test. I never knew that. I, never I, I learned knew that, that like a week ago. What? Shut the front door. <laughs> no. Wait a minute. And then I was like sitting there counting them all. Yeah. No. No. Yep. They're all there. Wow. Oh my gosh. My mind is totally blown. I feel like that. Have you seen that video where the guy pretends to do a magic trick and he takes the straw and he has his friend like put the straw behind the other guy's back and it blows his mind? Anyways. Yeah. yeah that's me right sense. now. Um, so, wow, that's freaking awesome. Okay. So, so is what the quick brown fox or no, the yes. quick, I thought the, the dog quick was brown. brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. I thought the dog was brown. Anyways. So let's say the quick <laughs> Any brown order fox. probably works. <laughs> so, so, you know, this algorithm will learn, you know, like you give it the quick brown and then it has to produce fox, right? Now, if you feel like that in isolation, that's like almost impossible. But you, but you give it a ton of these sentences and, you know, in, in every sentence you say, okay, here's the first word, predict the second one. Okay, here's the first two words, predict the third one, predict the fourth one, right? And you give it, you know, all of Wikipedia or something, right? And so, you know, yeah, I mean, for some of these subjects and objects, it's going to be really difficult, like the quick brown, it could be anything. But um, you're going to also see a lot of correlation. So you, you'll notice like whenever you see of, like maybe you see the afterwards, very common. And so you'll actually learn a lot of structure from doing that, from what they call a forward model. Right. And the awesome thing is it's effectively free. This is another thing because of Moore's law and because computers have become so cheap and so efficient, you know, it's really the people time that's the killer for a lot of these things. Like if you can eliminate the time that a human has to do something, you're in really good shape. And so, you know, with, with, with these forward models, you just download Wikipedia. I mean, you could do this on your laptop right now and predict the next word. Uh, you don't have to pay any humans to rate any sentences or anything. So now you have this embedding, which says, you know, given a part of a sentence, I have some point in some space based on what word's coming next. And so, you know, sentence fragments where the next word is going to be fox will all kind of be close together, right? It turns out now, if you do that same translation problem, but you work with that embedded space instead of with whole sentences, you need, and it's been a while since I saw this, but I think it's like one one thousandth of the data or something like that. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, the difference is unbelievable. And so, um, you know, what used to take millions and millions of sentences, you know, now after like 10,000 sentences, you're done. Um, and, and there's even uh, models now where they've embedded They've actually done this jointly with different languages. And so they embed like literally every language into the same space. And then all they have to do is train the second half of it, which which does the translation part. So yeah, so all of natural language processing completely redone with self-supervised learning. Like it's massively changed that field. And I think even with image processing, you're starting to see you know, a lot of interesting things. The, the image equivalent of this is where you basically cut a piece of an image out and you say, reconstruct that missing piece of the image. 
Uh, it's like, remember the uh, magic eraser, that Adobe Photoshop thing? That was like really popular like 10 yeah, years ago. Content aware. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, and so you could, uh, and, and so uh, you could actually, yeah, you could erase a person and it'll fill the fence in behind them, right? So imagine, you know, you you cut the person out, but your your intent in this case isn't to literally cut them out of the picture. It's it's to see like how good your reconstruction can be, and if and and you immediately know what the algorithm did right and and didn't do right. Um, so in this case, you actually want it to generate. So, so you wouldn't do something really difficult like cut out an entire person. You would. You'd randomly cut out squares. And some of the time it would be impossible because you cut out a whole car or something. But most of the time you'll cut off parts of things and you'll be able to. Yeah, like if you cut out one person's eye, you just copy their other eye or whatever and yeah. flip it or something. Yeah, exactly. And so same kind of thing. So you, you have this model that reconstructs things by putting them into this big cube. And then uh, you can just do more and more things on that cube. So. If you look at Dolly from OpenAI, this is what they did. So they they trained a model on Wikipedia to predict the next word of the sentence, like I just described. And then they trained another model on images. And then they created a, another thing which said, I have captions for images. So I have like a picture of the quick brown fox jumping over the lazy dog. And, and then I have that caption. Those two points should be close together. And then I'm going to take captions that don't belong with their picture, mismatched caption picture pairs, and those points should be far apart. And I'm going to take those input embeddings and now train you know, another what's called a joint embedding that tries to unify or push apart those pairs. And that's how Dolly works. So, so then... You know, when you go to OpenAI and you say, you know, astronaut eating ice cream on the moon, it's taking those three models, the language model. I guess it doesn't need the image model anymore, but it's taking the language model and, uh, oh, no, it, it does. It needs the, the language model, the image model, and this joint model. It's using all three of them to generate that picture of that astronaut on the moon. Uh, and the question is, is the Artemis capsule floating around the the moon in the background to tie this <laughs> we should it. just type artemis into dolly and see if it's on the moon or not uh i think like <laughs> but they have exclusions for like a lot of proper names and nouns and stuff so i don't know i don't, I don't know how that works ah uh, really yeah i uh i used it a little bit i found it to be you know really captivating there's something powerful about that um i've, I've always been a really big fan of, of dolly but uh um, other than this visual interactive fiction, I haven't found a practical use for it. <laughs> well, it feels good to do a do a duo episode. I know it's been a while, but uh, going through the uh, the habit of uh, the first first uh, few episodes, well, many many episodes of you and I doing this together, it feels it feels good to do it again. Do our tools of the show, book of the show, news, and then uh, this discussion about machine learning was was a really good time. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, these are all very accessible, approachable things. Um, you can use SageMaker or other tools. You can train on all of Wikipedia without having to download it to your desktop if you don't want to. Um, I think I saw, you know, training that model I just talked about run you like like 30 bucks or something, which, you know, is the price of like going to the movies. So it's not, it's not nothing, <laughs> um, but it's also like... Uh, pretty amazing that for 30 bucks you could train a model on 
you know, the entire Wikipedia corpus, um, and it'll come out correct and everything. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, a lot of fun, amazing times we're living in. And, and, uh, um, I guess as a like final thing, anything you build, you're going to need to collect some type of metric to understand the people who are using your product. And, uh, and so this is a really good area for folks to uh, brush up on. All right. And with yeah. that note, um, yeah, it's really awesome doing a dual episode. Um, looking forward to seeing this one come out. Looking forward to seeing if we're right or not about, about our prediction. And really looking forward to your emails. We've been getting you know, a ton of really great emails. So appreciate uh, everybody out there. We do read them. Even if Patrick uh, has them marked as unread, he has looked at the subject. <laughs> no, I actually, I think both of us literally read uh, uh, every email. Um, that we get on programming throwdown. So we really appreciate um, your support and um, you know supporting us on Patreon and, and Audible. So so thanks so much. Uh, definitely subscribe if you're not subscribed to the show using whatever uh, podcast catcher. We should be on all of them at this point. If we're not, let us know. And uh, we will catch you all in two weeks. Music by Eric Barndoller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind. <laughs>